Let's turn to Micah chapter 1. This is his first message. We read here, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So at the get-go, when it says Samaria, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So Micah is going to prophesy to both of them. Ahab and Jezebel built their temple to Baal in Samaria. Jezebel was the one who introduced Baal worship to the ten northern tribes. But also says in verse 1, also um, Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem would have represented uh, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Um, This is before uh, the fall to Assyria. And um, actually, it actually takes place during it. Um, as I looked at the time frame here, because it fell in the northern ten tribes fell to Assyria in 722 BC, and the dating of the book of Micah is 735 to 710 BC. So the first um, eight verses here, um, let's read and I'll come back and comment. This is the judgment of Samaria. And when I say Samaria, I'm referring to the ten northern tribes. Hear all you peoples. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. So Israel and Samaria and the ten northern tribes are all the same thing. So if I say Israel here or Samaria, um, it is referring to the ten northern tribes. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field. Places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley and I will uncover her foundation. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. And all who pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. Now, sexual immorality is going to be a big part of the reason for the judgment. And her idols I will lay desolate. For she gathered it for a pay of a harlot, and they shall return to pay of a harlot. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostrich. Now, the problem in Micah's day was that Samaria and Jerusalem had become corrupt. And God was going to judge them. 
And now we make the parallels. Well, what about our own country? What about the United States? Uh, The United States doesn't seem to appear in the prophecies of the end of time. Could be for one or two reasons. Either it will disappear as a nation or it will no longer be a world power. We could go through a whole litmus of um, thoughts of how this could possibly come to pass from a terrorist attack to an electromagnetic pulse, which would pretty much put us back to the 19th century. Um, And what I'm talking about here is very, very plausible, very doable. This one nuke over the middle of the country and our electric grid, it's gone. So I hope you have a wood-burning fireplace (laughs) in the middle of winter because... Um, we're, not, we're, we're a lot softer generation than what my grandma and grandpa grew up on. My grandpa cleared um, 80 acres by hand. And mom tells a story after they take him out, they'd hook up the horses to pull out the, pull out the uh, stumps, and then they would re- sit on the back of, of grandpa's uh, uh, behind the horses and they would pick stones and throw them on. They walked behind the horses and that's how they cleared the land. And um, they lived in a tar shack and they, uh, and they burned wood in the middle of winter. And I'm talking northern Wisconsin, not southern Wisconsin. And um, I don't know if I should get that personal or not. <laughs> when mom had to go potty in the middle of the night, she had a she had a, a deal made out with uh, her sister when they're about the same age. If one had to go, they went together. So you had to go outside in the middle of winter to walk to the outhouse. That did not flush. What's your point? My point is they were a lot tougher then, and they probably could have made could have made it. We're not worried that way. We're you know we want to we want to drive through and get our quarter pounder and cheese and go home and. And uh, we're soft, just compared to, to that lifestyle. As we look at these first verses here, the first message is that God is going to judge because of the sins that have come in. And Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab um, was Jewish and Jezebel um, was not and let's turn, just to tie it in here, Samaria was their palace. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation and point out why it's so important to study the book of Micah and why we study and teach and why we have to have a background. Well, who is Ahab? What's the big deal with Jezebel? Well, that eventually led to, you know, the Bible says a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. Well, they were bad already, but it really got worse with Jezebel. Now they were worshiping the Baals. And now that Jezebel is in town, she caused a whole nation to worship Baal instead of Jehovah. As bad as they were, now they were only worse. Now we have to have that as a background because if we didn't, and you went to Revelation chapter 2 and started studying the, the uh, church of Thyatira, 
I touched on this when we talked about the rapture a couple weeks ago. And talking about um, the church of Thyatira, this is one of the four churches that will be in existence when Jesus comes again. And I'll point out why when we get there. Um, in verse 20, 19, and the Lord lists their good works. I personally believe this is a picture of the Roman Catholic Church, just as Laodicea is a picture of the Prosperity Church, and just as the Church of Philadelphia is um, uh, the church that is going to be preserved from going into the tribulation. Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world. Well, the only trial that's going to come upon the whole world is the great tribulation. And he says, you're little in strength, but you haven't denied my name. You haven't compromised on doctrine. You've stayed true to the word of God. And even though you're not a megachurch, because you have kept that, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to take you out before that time that's going to test the entire world. And we use that as a contrast to Thyatira. Now, what was the problem with Thyatira? They did a lot of good things. Verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Well, that's a pretty good commendation. And if that could save you, um, then they would be saved. Except works cannot save you. So we read where he says, nevertheless, all, all of a sudden, big switch. All, this, all these good things going for them. But he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Now, unless you're reading Micah and Jeremiah in the Old Testament and you understand who she is and what she did, then this isn't going to make any sense. So you have to have the background and the necessity of teaching the whole council of God. Good place for it, amen. You gotta have the book of Micah under your belt. You gotta have the book of Jeremiah. You gotta understand the theme of the major prophets and the minor prophets. And um, so when we read Jezebel, oh, all right, the, the lights go on. That's the gal that married Ahab that introduced Baal worship and caused a whole nation, a little leaven, leaven the whole whole country to they, where they had the shootout on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal against Elijah. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. She introduced idolatry to the church. Okay, what's idolatry? Well, when you add to the word of God, then that is idolatry. When you remove the second commandment and take away from the word of God, that's idolatry. When you come up with um, where the Bible clearly says once to die and then the judgment. You know, I, I, I gave myself a good talking to yesterday because 58 people died tragically. And, you know, I, I thought just how bad, I thought, you know, just how bad is this? But then I hear yesterday 
Tom Petty dies. And now I have an emotional uh, attachment because I really like Tom Petty. And I liked his music a lot. And just as far as his personality. And I was moved because Tom Petty died. But I wasn't moved when 58 people died. God is no respecter of person. Why am I moved because Tom Petty dies and I'm not emotionally moved over 58 people and their whole lives are turned upside down? That's not right. There's, you ever, David, David gave himself a good talking to lots of times. He says, listen, oh my soul. <laughs> listen up, Dwight. <laughs> Get, it's, God's no respecter of persons. And the Bible says that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And right now, we should be grieving. And, um, you know, there's no such thing that it's purgatory. Uh, that is a lie. That is sexual, immoral, immor- um, what they call it here, uh, it's called sexual immor- immorality. And eat things sacrificed to idols. Well, these are things that are being introduced to the church that can actually cause a person not to be saved because they're adding to something that the Bible doesn't teach. The Bible teaches that we're saved by faith alone, by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, period, nothing more. So by introducing these other things, the Lord says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into the sickbed of those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. I would put the word the in front of it. Unless they repent of their deeds. What is that saying? Well, Philadelphia is, isn't, is going to be kept from it, from the hour of the wrath, but this church here is going to go through it. It begs the question, are these people saved or not? If they're saved, then they wouldn't be going into the great tribulation. Only those who are saved are going to be raptured. These people aren't raptured. But look at their works. Verse 19, love, service, faith, patience, and your works are more than the first. Full of good works. And if good works could save you, you're in like Flint. But in this case, no. It goes on to say, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. It's individual. Um, having said that, um, um, but to the rest of you, and as many that do not have this doctrine, doctrine is everything. So what does that tell us? Well, there's people that are born again uh, in mainline Protestantism, mainline Roman Catholicism, that um, don't hold to these things or believe these things, and the Lord acknowledges that here. He will put no other burden on you. All right, let's go back to Micah. Why did we go there? Because as we start Micah and we get through the first eight verses, the judgment is against Samaria, and that's the headquarters of where Ahab and Jezebel were. And she is the one that introduced Baal worship into Israel. All right, from verses 9 to 16, we have now the judgment of Judah. For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. 
and has come to the gates of my people, even to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Now, um, Gath means weeping town. So it's sort of a play on words here. Weep not in Gath. Gath was a weeping, that was what, what his name. Weep not at uh, Beth uh, Perah. Um, that means uh, dust town. And the idea here is the idea of, of uh, they should have been mourning in sackcloth and ashes. Roll yourself in the dust. So there's a play on words because that's what Beth Aprab means uh, dust town. Pass it by naked. Shame, uh, you inhabitants of Saphir. And the inhabitants of Zanan does not go out. Uh, Beth Ezel mourns. It's placed to stand. It takes away from you. Uh, for the inhabitants of Moroth. Moroth means bitterness. Pine for good. But disaster came down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. O inhabitants of Lachish, harness a chariot to the swift seed. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgression of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you shall give presents to Moraseth Gath, the house of Ashzib, the king of Israel, and I will yet bring an heir to you, inhabitants of Merishah. And the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut your hair because of your precious children and larger baldness like an eagle, for they shall go from you into captivity. Now, as these judgments... Um, are going to come, what's going to happen is the Assyrians are actually going to come and conquer the ten northern tribes here called Samaria. Um, Judah, on the other hand, is going to escape. Uh, there are those who believe that Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries, that he actually knew uh, Hezekiah, who would have been, Isaiah would have been the prophet during Hezekiah's time, and they were worried about the Assyrians. This was a little, about a hundred years later. So the 10 northern tribes fall to Assyria. They come down against Jerusalem. And this is when Hezekiah, the prophet, contemporary to Micah, says to the king, Hezekiah, don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. Um, And he was worried about it. They went to great unbelievable extremes to protect the city of Jerusalem. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. I mean, they tunneled through solid rock for about, I don't know, fifth of a mile and um, so that they could have their water resource when the city was under siege. They didn't have to do it. I mean, the whole reason for doing it They had 180,000 Assyrians outside the gate, and here you have the prophet um, speaking to the king, saying, don't worry, not not one arrow will be shot over. And that just triggered something that I read just last week. 
they were doing archaeological work in the city of, of David. And they're finding all these arrowheads. They're finding Babylonian arrowheads. All the different um, enemies of Israel that ever attacked Israel, they're finding all these arrowheads. The only arrowhead that they have not found is an arrowhead from the Assyrians. And what did Hezekiah um, tell, uh, I, I mean Isaiah tell Hezekiah? Not one arrow is going to be fired into the city. And the night that they were going to attack, the Lord sent one angel and wiped out 180,000 plus Assyrians. And Sennacherib, the king hightails it back, and his two sons kill him that very night. And so they never fell. Judah never fell to Assyria. They fell to the Babylonians. They found all kinds of Babylonian um, artifacts in the city of David. I'm anxious to go back because the part where they're doing most of the archaeological work right now is in the city of David. And every year, it's, um, it's been, uh, they're, they're going deeper down and finding more and more. And it, that, was, that was news. Anybody else hear that besides me? Or, or hear about the arrowheads? So, section two here in this section that uh, we, we talk about the judgment on Judah, um, her wounds are basically incurable. The nation has passed over an invisible line from which there was no possibility of returning. While we don't know where that line is, I do know that it, it exists. And when an individual or a nation passes over that line, there's no possibility of reconciliation. It's not that God is not merciful and gracious, but the individual or the nation is so bent to sin and has turned a deaf ear to God for so long that there's nothing left to do but to bring judgment. The wound is incurable. They will no longer hear God. We kicked school out of the uh, prayer out of the school in the 60s and it's been downhill ever since. And it's only getting worse as our time goes by. Now, let's talk about this line a little bit. There's something that's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't want to take for granted that all of us here understands what that is. So I'm going to have you turn to Mark in the New Testament, chapter 3. Mark 3, picking it up in verse 22. Let's set the background here a little bit. And again, my point in this is where's the line? God draws a line, according to 1 Corinthians 7, about children when they reach the age of accountability. Now, the Bible doesn't say what the age of accountability is. I know that in Israel, when you turn 13, they have a bar mitzvah. And you're now considered responsible for your actions. And so somewhere there's a line. I think it's probably different. And I'm glad I'm not God. (laughs) That says, okay, you just crossed the line. If you would have died here, you would have been innocent. Because I would... You didn't know, like we read on Sunday, the difference between your right hand and your left hand, why Nineveh was saved, because there was 120,000 children that didn't know their right hand from their left hand. 
And First um, Corinthians 7 talks about the children of Christians. I believe, personally, every child. But First Corinthians 7 makes it clear that the children of Christians, before they reach that age of accountability, are, are saved. So I grieve for babies that die or are stillborn or die in the womb or are a couple years old. But not too much. They're in heaven. They never have to be in debt. They never have to have their heart broken. They never have to uh, experience the grief that um, mankind goes through, experience sin. They don't have to experience any of that stuff. They just get to go home. My thought is, what does a two-year-old look like when he gets to heaven? How old is he anyway? <laughs> Do you think like that? <laughs> I wonder I wonder about such things. So anyway, Mark 3, picking it up in verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, Oh, he has Belzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. So he called them to him and said to them in parables, well, how can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they have uttered. Now this was our point, that God even saved the Ninevites. They were the worst of the worst. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to temporary condemnation. I'm saying that because we talked about Calvinism and uh, predestination and we've been talking about universalism and the, the popular false gospels that are out there today. No, it's eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. So the question is, and this is bothersome, it was very bothersome to me as a new believer, so what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the one sin that will never be forgiven in this life or the life to come? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply when a person hears, well, let's, let's take it one step farther and turn to Romans chapter one and talk about that line again. Romans chapter 1, when a person gets to the place and God knows, like in the book of Micah, they've crossed the line. Where's the line? Well, when it comes to salvation, when a person hears the simple gospel and the words the messenger that God uses uh, is born again and he understands the gospel. Yet even understanding the gospel, it says in verse 18 that 
even though they hear the truth, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, in their heart they're going, yeah, that may be true, but they suppress that truth in unrighteousness. John 3 tells us, men do not come to the light, because if you come to the light, it exposes your darkness, and men don't want to come to the light because they want to continue in their sin. Now, I I can identify with that before I was a believer. But when I was baptized, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, well, let me just, before I go there, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Hearing the gospel, let's say Billy Graham is preaching it. I would say he has the gift of evangelism. You'd agree with that? Okay, so he says, I don't want anybody to leave right now. And um, I want those of you who want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't let anybody move. You can just see Billy Graham doing it, right? He says, stay in your seats. I want you to come forward and make a, a public de- declaration. Well, don't you think there's other people that are just going, hmm, if I do this, then I have to be that. And they're weighing this whole thing out. But at the end of the day, they say no. And then they go to the work the next day, and they're, there are person says, I went to the Billy Graham crusade last night and I got saved. And, um, and I saw you there. And, um, and you didn't go forward. And then a week later, somebody else witnesses to him. And he gets witnessed to and witnessed to and witnessed to. And every time he hears it, he's hardening his heart more and more. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the only sin that can't be forgiven? It's when you hear the gospel and you say no. It's the only sin that God can't forgive. Why? Because there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. He's the only way. So if you say no to the only way, you can never be forgiven. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I was a young Christian, a couple years old in the Lord, I didn't have any meat on my, my bones at all for the first two years. No Bible teaching, no training, no nothing. And somebody actually told me I need to be baptized again and filled with the Holy Spirit. I said, so what's that? (laughs) And in, uh, I think it was April 11th, 1972, I was baptized. I've told you the story before, in water, by the Jesus people in Milwaukee on Brady Street. And, um, I mean, I, I not only got baptized, but I came out of the water speaking in tongues. And I was over, like it says, it was an overflowing experience. And um, then we were driving back to Oshkosh, and I wanted to be alone. I had just had this experience, and and um, I remember this being dropped off. There's a sign that says Holy Hill this way, and I thought, well, that sounds like a good place to go. And I'd been there before, and I knew it was beautiful. But I just wanted to walk and be alone, just like the Lord was in after he was baptized in, in, in water and um, filled with the Spirit. He was in the wilderness, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil. Well, here I'm walking, trying to hitchhike to Holy Hill, and I'm having these verses go through my head, and one of them was, you better be careful now. Because you now, you could commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. As far as all I knew, that means swearing at the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy is what? Swearing. So Dwight, whatever you do, don't swear. 
against the Holy Spirit because that's the only sin now that will never be forgiven. So you better not do it. And I thought, I just did it. And the devil was messing with my head like you wouldn't believe. And he had persuaded me that I cursed the Holy Spirit. And um, I ended up in a ditch on my face because I did not know the word of God. I didn't know that was not what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was. I was just a baby. And you know, I've told the story, but I'll tell it again if you haven't heard it. Uh, when I, I, I finally got there, I, I told this priest because I figure, you know, he's a priest. He, he must know what's going on. I said, I think I just committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, I was look, I had hair down to here. I was look, looking pretty radical, and he was looking pretty holy. And I, <laughs> he walks me over to a bookcase that he hands me C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a classic when it comes to spiritual warfare. About uh, he he wrote it for his kids, just like um, the Lion and Witch in the Wardrobe. And it explains um, spiritual warfare and how the devil messes with your head by twisting the scriptures from one senior demon to a younger demon on how to mess up Christians and to get them to leave the faith. It was exactly what I needed, and I knew it. So um, I just want to touch on what really is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's simple. It's when you hear the true gospel and you suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We read in verse 24 of Romans 1, therefore. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. There's the line. You can suppress the truth for so long. And then God says, okay. He says, I've done everything I could to get you to come to me. It's the goodness of the Lord that leads a person to repentance. Good place for an amen. God is not willing that any should perish, but all all should come to repentance. Well, they're not going to. Therefore, because they're not going to, therefore, God's going to give them up to their uncleanness. In the lust of their hearts to decide under the bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than a creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their own error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Do you know how un politically correct I just read how I'm, this is just not politically correct just the opposite to read this publicly today is putting people uh, people losing their jobs and I'll tell a story about the what's going on in the Nina school system but that's a little bit no I'll tell it right now uh, one of the guys at Ben's prayer and, and was at a, a school board meeting and there was 25 people there the main thing on the, on the list was uh, bringing teaching of, of uh, transsexual um, teaching into the school. That's what it was up for. And uh, there was a couple of people that I knew 
I've known for a long time who, who took a stand for it. Well, what's your point? My point is we're talking in Wisconsin. And we're talking about this being talked in a public school setting. Should we bring this in? How far are we as a nation? How far have we come as a country where this is part of the curriculum that we're bringing in? That we got to have a school council meeting to discuss whether or not we should do this? Well, guess what? There's going to be enough politically correct people in the crowd that will go, yeah, well, this is times we live in. You know, times change. We're not living in the 50s anymore. This isn't leave it to beaver time. This is the world we live in. No, it's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the last days where um, lawlessness will abound. Lawlessness abounding. What's happened in the last couple days? You know, and it's just escalating exponentially. All right, so... That's chapter 1. Let's go back to Micah. You can pray for this. uh, There's another meeting uh, coming up. I don't think this is a done deal. And it's open to the public. If you want to go put your two cents worth in and and, um, make a stand, there's a couple brothers in the fellowship that I know that are going to be there. And um, chapter 2 is Micah's second message. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house and a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster for which you cannot remove your necks, nor shall you walk haughtily. For this is an evil time. In that day one shall take up a proverb against you and lament with a bitter lamentation and say, we are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people, how he has removed it from me. To a turncoat he has divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries by lot in the congregation of the Lord. Do not prattle. You say to those who prophesy, you you shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named of the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? We'll take this up to verse 11 here. Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with a garment for those who trust you as they pass by, like men returning from war. The women of my people you cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is your rest, because... It is defiled, it shall destroy you. Even it will utterly in destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, even he would be a prattle of of his people. Now these first 11 verses we have here 
in Micah's second message. In this chapter, Micah describes the specific sins of the people. Judgment came upon these people because they had gone into idolatry. And with all that that implies, idolatry in that day represented gross immorality. And the wages of harlot ran the high places. Just like we read, when they crossed that line, as Israel is doing here, they're crossing a line, the Lord gave them over. Romans 1 says it gave them over uh, to their vile passions. Same here. Prostitution was the source of funds for their religion, since sex was associated with idolatry. We find that the same thing is true today in the occult and in Satan worship. I think there is a connection between the occult of today and the idolatry of Micah's day. Sex plays a very prominent part in both of them. Uh, They are a revelation of man breaking God's commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Sexual sin, idolatry, seems to go together. They destroy the home and destroy the sweet and tender relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. When sex is kept within the marriage relationship, it can become the sweetest and most precious thing on earth. But when a nation moves sex out of the context and encourages illicit sex in the name of religion or new morality, it is evident of the fact that the nation is in decline and is actually on its way out. The sins which Micah will denounce in this chapter are sins against one another, sin against mankind, while in the first chapter their sins and their relationship was against God. Now their sins are against um, mankind. Now, uh, as it gets into this whole area, when they say they went to worship on the high places, well, they were basically orgies, especially in 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 uh, in Corinth. Uh, I've been able to see the ruins of Corinth, and you know they would they had one thousand temple priestesses. They were prostitutes. And the way that they worshipped was, um, that's why so in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he deals with the subject. I think the first verse says, it's not good for a man to touch a woman, but because of sexual immorality, let every man have his own wife. But today, you know, nobody thinks anything in our culture today of people living together and um, without being married. And what they don't realize is that if they, if they think they're Christians and they're shacking up or sleeping together, then they're deceived. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 tells us, says, don't be deceived. These are the people who are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it has the list. People always get hung up on the homosexual. No, it says fornication and adultery. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. Adultery is cheating on your husband or your wife. And those who continue, in other words, it's ongoing. It's not like David and Bathsheba. David repented and God forgave him. Uh, That was different. And you could have fallen in that area. But if you repent and you turn from it, it's like the woman who got caught in the act of adultery. 
The Lord said, okay, knock it off. Don't do it anymore. I, I won't condemn you. And he, he set her free. And, um, and I'm sure she followed the Lord the rest of her life. But let's be honest with our culture and society today. Um, I got to be careful flipping channels. I'm flipping channels and I'm going, whoa, what's with this? And you got to hurry up and move on to the next one. And um, so, you know, the Proverbs talk about making a covenant with your eyes. And um, who said it? James Dobson. I never quote James Dobson, but I'm going to quote him here tonight. <laughs> he says, every, if you're in a restaurant and a beautiful looking woman comes in, every man's going to turn his head. He says, that's natural. What's wrong is when he looked twice. And um, that's human nature. And then now you have to have self-control. And now you're either governed by your flesh or the Holy Spirit. Everybody following me at that one? Okay, that was a James Dobson quote, remember now. That didn't come from Dwight. That came from James Osmond. (laughs) Human nature. But when uh, a country gets to that place, then God lets go. And let's face it, we're, we're at that point. And um, all right, let's pick up 12 and 13. It's only two verses. These are the sins Mike is talking about against their own people. 12 says, I will, this is a, a promise of future restoration. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the flock, like the flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many men. The one who breaks open will come up. This is a millennial scripture. Before them, they will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their, at their head. So here, again, what you want to catch, judgment, as always, we find it connected somewhere in the chapter where the Lord points to the kingdom. Yes, you're going to go through this now. But here's another example where judgment is imminent. And in this case, they did fall to King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, that brings us to our final chapter tonight, chapter 3, where now this is against the leaders of the country. Uh, judgment on the princes, verses 1 through 4. Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, uh, you who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, Play their skin from them, break their bones, chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they, uh, there have been evil in their deeds. Well, we're, we're talking about the leaders of our nation at the top level our judges, uh, people with authority in law enforcement, our government, and all the way up to the Supreme Court. Our Supreme Court's pretty much split down the middle. 
Um, let's just take the topic of abortion. And um, you, you have our highest leaders in the country, and half of them support it and find no problem with it. It's a woman's right to choose. No, it's killing babies. And, and the Lord is basically calling them, and using quite graphic terms here, who eat the flesh of my people, flay their skins for, for them. Ugh. I, you know, um, ugh, I can't even say it. Just the procedure that takes place. You guys know what I'm talking about when they go in the womb before the, while the child is still alive, you know. That should be unspeakable, and I, I can't even speak it, and I won't, but you know what I'm talking about. And they hear, they say they will cry to the Lord, but the Lord won't hear them. This is the hierarchy, the leaders of the country. God's going to hold them accountable. Verses 5 through 8 is a judgment on the prophets. Now we're getting into those who would be in leadership in the church, if we'd liken it to today. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace when they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without definition. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. The Lord is warning against the false prophets. We have false prophets today. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. And one of these signs that's repeated four times when the Lord asked, the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, what's it going to be like right before you come again? He'll eventually say it'll be like the days of Noah. But preceding that, the very first thing he said is, take heed that no one deceive you. And then he says, for many will come in my name, saying I am Christ and will deceive many. That's verse four. Verse 11 says, then many false prophets will arise and deceive many. Then you look at verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise even show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. One of the things that we should be looking for, like in Micah's time and in Jeremiah's time, Jeremiah was a lone ranger. He was the only one with the true message. The majority were the false prophets that everybody wanted to listen to. And remember that these are contemporaries. So don't worry about it. You're not going to be taken into Babylon, don't sweat it. Everything's going to be fine. And you guys that are up there now, um, you're you're going to be coming home and everything's going to be okay. Well, uh, even though Jeremiah was the minority, they didn't call him the weeping prophet for nothing. Nobody listened to him. Yet he was spot on. Exactly what he said happened. They went into captivity for 70 years, exactly like Jeremiah said that he would. Jesus said one of the key signs of the last days are false prophets. I could list off a whole bunch of them. Um, In my time in ministry, the main ones were the Kansas City prophets, with Paul Cain and Bob Jones, 
and uh, there's Rick Joyner, and, and um, oh, there's just many. John Wimber, and some of these guys have, have passed on. And um, doing things in the name of the Lord, but they're false prophets, and they're deceiving people. The prosperity teachers are going right along with that. All right, let's go back and finish up our chapter. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, the promise of future judgment. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity, her heads judged for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they learn, let they, uh, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruin and the mountains of the temples like the bare hills of the forest. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the peoples of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And they quote Micah chapter 3, verse 12, and that was the very last um, verse that I read here tonight. It goes back to... Um, Jeremiah twenty six eighteen, And we find that it took place, it confirmed the prophecy, the destruction did take place when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. In the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, we see the significance of it. When Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, he found it in a mess. It was nothing but debris and ashes and rubble and ruin. It seemed like a hopeless task to rebuild the city. But um, nonetheless, eventually it was. We're in the book of Micah. It ties in, it parallels the the country in which we live. And um, starting with chapter 4, a complete switch of gears, where now it's um, 4 and 5 is the promise of the coming kingdom, where now we have hope. But until then, judgment. So here we are. We want to be Philadelphia, and we don't want to be Laodicea or Thyatira. Good place for an amen. amen. Is it going to be happy clappy? No. Is it okay to sigh and groan when we look around and we see the evil? We should. We better. And we say, oh, Lord, have mercy on this nation and where it's headed. And, um, you know, you're accountable for yourself. I'm accountable for myself and my family. You're accountable for yourself and your family. You're, the, you're, you're, you're leading. You've got to tell them what to look out for. And uh, again, the key verse is, but to do justly. We, I'll close with it because it's so good. It's 
such a downer of a Bible study. How about we end on a happy, happy note? The key to the book of Micah's reply is, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you that you are gut-level honest with the sins of Jerusalem and the judgment that you brought upon them when they crossed the line. So, Lord, we want to learn from the Old Testament and apply it as we look at our own nation. We see how quickly we're falling. Lord, help us to do what we've just read, to do justly and to love mercy, and to have a heart, instead of taking advantage of people, actually wanting to help people uh, with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for the Wednesday night study. We pray you bless us as we go our way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.